Genesis 18, verses 1 through 15. And the Lord appeared to him, meaning Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw him, when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh yourselves. And after, you and after that, you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran, ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, Am I worn out, and my Lord is old? Shall I have pleasure? After I am worn out, and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you, about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jossie. It was siesta time, time when you took a little nap, let the heat of the day pass. Maybe that's why he didn't notice their approach. Perhaps Abraham had, had dozed off a bit when suddenly he looked up and there they were, three guys standing in front of them. Didn't know them for Adam, from Adam, never met them before, but Abraham is well-versed in the hospitality standards of his day. He, he immediately welcomes them, offers to care for their needs, and yet it seems he speaks and acts even better than he realizes. He addresses the one guy, the guy in the middle, as, as Lord. Now, a term of respect, but it seems a bit more maybe hinted at. He says, if I have found favor in your sight, if I have found grace, if I have found grace in your sight, do not pass by your servant. This dignified, well-established man, their servant. He says, I'll, I'll bring you a morsel of bread, and then he has a feast prepared for them. And the way, the way this dignified, elderly man was in such a rush... Did you notice that? He quickly goes to Sarah and asks her to bake a huge quantity of bread. 
He ran and has had the best calf slaughtered. And then he stands by, standing there while they feast. He seems to be speaking and acting maybe a bit better than he realizes. For they say to him, where is Sarah, your wife? Excuse me? How do you know my wife's name? Of course she's in the tent, of course she's been helping with the food, but how do you know her name? And the man in the middle says, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. How does he know about God's promises to us? Uh, Yes, Sarah has tried to bring them to pass a bit on her own. Sometimes she takes things in her own hands. But this one she can't. God has promised them an elderly couple, an elderly couple, a son. How can this strange visitor guarantee them a child and in a year's time? As if he has it on the calendar already. He even knows Sarah's private thoughts. Sarah overheard him say, a son, in a year, and she laughed. (laughs) to herself, is a little private chuckle. Who can blame her? As she thought to herself, this guy clearly doesn't know anything about women or the aging process. (laughs) Menopause has passed me by. He thinks I'm going to have a son in a year. I mean, of course she chuckled to herself. And then the man said, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Sarah chimed in, overhearing, I didn't laugh. I I didn't, it wasn't a laugh. She was afraid. Wouldn't you be? Someone knowing your own private dialogue? But he corrected her so gently and kindly. No, but you did laugh. And not only that, he addressed her with a question. It was a rhetorical question. He wasn't looking for an answer. He was making a statement. Is anything, anything at all, is anything too hard for the Lord? Now, I recount the story that way so that you can feel some of the, some of the tension, some of the drama between Abraham and Sarah not realizing who is visiting them, but we are informed from the very outset. The divinely inspired narrator clued us in from the start of the passage. Did you notice that? Verse 1, And the Lord, the Lord, the Lord appeared to Abraham. Again in verse 10, again in verse 13, The Lord, the Lord said to Abraham, There's no doubt for us, this is some kind of theophany. A God appearance, that's what theophany means. A God appearance, God appearing by some means, some some medium. But they don't realize that. So we should ask, why is this here? This theophany. Why is this in our Bibles? What what do we learn about God from this theophany? Well, it's not hard to find, is it? It's right there in verse 14. It's God's response to Sarah's laughter with really, as one commentator put it, 
one of the great statements in all of Scripture about God's character. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Implied answer, nothing. It's a statement about God's omnipotence, His all-powerful, all-powerful nature. And it's about His omnipotence, His all-powerful nature, in a specific context. Notice the context in which this theophany takes place. The context is the promise of a son. You probably noticed that. comes up a few times, like verse 10. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Again, in verse 14, at the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year. Sarah will have a son. We can't miss the context. It's a promise of a son, part of, if you've been tracking in this series, part of God's covenant with them, part of God's solemn commitment that he stated back in chapter 12, a promise of a land, a promise to be a people, and a promise that through that people would be blessing to all peoples of the earth. So, At stake here would be God's solemn, committed promises, this covenant. Now, that's important. That's important because I I wish I could preach to you, is anything too hard for the Lord means every problem of yours in this life will be fixed. Every pain taken away, every sickness healed in this life But that's not what this passage is saying. This passage is not, of course, about God doing whatever we want Him to do. It's not God as our genie in a bottle. It's not God as our all-powerful vending machine. It's not God promising, as some unfortunately teach, health, wealth, and prosperity in this life. No. This theophany is about God's all-powerful nature backing up these covenantal promises. That's what you want to see. God's all-powerful nature backing up this promise of a son, yes, and through that son, a nation, yes, and through that nation, blessing to every nation of the earth. In other words, in other words, catch this, the birth announcement in Genesis 18 ultimately points you forward to another birth announcement. When the angel Gabriel showed up to an unmarried teenager named Mary and gave her some shocking news, Mary, guess what? The Holy Spirit will come upon you. You're going to be miraculously pregnant. The child born to you, Mary, will be called Holy, the Son of God. And in contrast to Sarah, Mary doesn't laugh. She just says, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. My point, my point is that you can trace this covenant of grace from Genesis 12 through Genesis 18 all the way to Jesus, all the way to you and me. That's why this is in our Bibles. I would put the main idea like this, that the the all-powerful God will keep all his promises to us Christ. I think that's what you want to take away. The the all-powerful God, nothing too hard for Him, the all-powerful God will keep all His promises to us in Christ. 
So you should ask, we should ask, what difference should that make for us? How should we apply this? Well, I think in at least two ways. Let me give you two ways. I think there is, in light of that main idea, in light of that truth, two things, a call and a comfort. Mostly, mostly I think it's a call to faith. A call to believe in the God who is all-powerful and will keep every promise to you in Christ. A call to faith. You see, humanly humanly speaking, this situation in Genesis 18 was impossible. Impossible. An elderly couple having a son. For Sarah to hear, after so many years of disappointment to this point, you'll have a son next year. A year from now, it's on the calendar. It probably seemed like a cruel joke. I mean, believing that, believing that would just set her up for another crushing disappointment a year from now. Can you relate to that? Anything in your life where you'd say, I I don't want to get my hopes up again and just be let down? That seems to be where Sarah was. And so God shows up in this theophany, revealing His all-powerful nature as a call to faith. The, The Atlantic magazine I read recently online had a little article entitled, What Was the Worst Prediction? The Worst Prediction of All Time had various responses. Here are a few. At the beginning of the 20th century, beginning of the 20th century, an essay in the Atlantic predicted that by the year 2000, we will have abolished war and the poor would be, leave, would be living in high-rise, quote, abodes of happiness and health. Unfortunately, that's not happened. A lady's home journal essay around the same time said that by now, all mice and rats would have been eliminated. (laughs) How'd you like that? And so would the letters C, X, and Q in our alphabet. Not sure why that is. In 1950, author Ray Bradbury predicted a necessary colonization of Mars by the early 2000s due to a global nuclear war that would render the Earth unlivable. Thankfully, that's not happened. More recently, in 2006, David Pogue wrote in the New York Times, quote, everyone's always asking me when Apple Computer will come out with a cell phone. My answer is probably never. (laughs) Not long after they introduced the iPhone. Those all turned out to be really bad predictions. Why? Think about it. Why? Because none of them had the power to bring to pass the prediction. That was why. You need the power to make good on your prediction, and that's where this theophany comes in. God makes predictions, you might say. We often call them promises. And here He's showing us that He has the power, oh, more than enough power, to bring every single one of them to pass. Think about it. He predicts He promises that His Son will return, a real physical return of Christ in great power and great glory. That 
that can seem impossible to us. Jesus in the sky returning, great power, great glory. Can God make good on that promise? Well, is anything too hard for the Lord? He predicts, he promises that when Christ returns, there will be a great judgment. And those who have believed in his Son will stand before him righteous in the righteousness of his Son. Every sin taken away. They will enter into everlasting joy in his immediate presence. Can God keep that promise? Can he bring that to pass? Well, is anything too hard for the Lord? He promises that when his son returns, God will wipe away every tear from the eyes of his people. No suffering in this life unaddressed, no suffering uncared for, and all things, friends, all things made new, a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Does that seem impossible to you? Well, is anything too hard for the Lord? But you might say, well, fine, Tab, that's nice. But what about what I'm going through right now? What about, what about what I'm going through now? What about my tomorrow and the next day? What's well, a good question? Because I think, I think what happened to Sarah, maybe, is what happens to us in our trials and temptations. It's called the Procrustean Bed Syndrome. The Procrustean bed syndrome. You see, Procrustus, the character in Greek mythology, he was an innkeeper. He ran a tavern. But the tavern had a grisly secret. Procrustus had a bed where he would invite travelers to rest. But at night, when they were asleep, he would, this is kind of grisly, he would gag them, tie them, and if the victim was a taller person... Maybe they had their feet or hands or head extending off the bed. Well, he would do a little amputation. So they would fit perfectly to the bed. But if the victim was shorter, he would break their bones, stretch them out, so they would fit perfectly to the bed. He forced his guests to fit the bed. Friends, that's what we do with the character of God in our minds. We force our understanding of his character to fit our interpretation of our circumstance. We force our understanding of what God is like into our perception of our situation. And if we have to, we just lop off part of who he says he is. We must not be all-powerful or he must not be good, or he must not be loving, or he must not be wise, because this is happening. We put God on our own procrustean bed. That seems to be what maybe Sarah is doing, maybe what you're doing. And God meets her right where she is in verse 14. Sarah Is anything too hard for the Lord? So I just want to ask you, friend, where where is this call to faith for you right now? Where is that for you? In light of God's promises in Christ? Where, Where do you need to believe that? 
is there an area where you perhaps have done some amputation on the character of God to fit your perception of your circumstance? I'm not trying, I'm not trying to minimize anything you're going through. Please don't misunderstand. But it is possible to, to heed this call of faith if you have echoing in your heart this question, is anything too hard for the Lord? I mean, take, take that situation you're thinking about and consider a promise like Romans 8, 28 and 29. God will work all things, all things together for your good, which in that passage is making you more like Christ. So nothing accidental in your life, no unused pain, no meaningless suffering, everything, everything used to refine your faith and make you more like Jesus Christ. Can God really do that in that situation right now for you? Can He be doing that in your life right now? Well, is anything, anything too hard for the Lord? Or consider his promise in Romans chapter 8, later in the same chapter, 38 and 39. Neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, listen, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Can that possibly be true? That nothing, nothing, nothing in your experience can possibly separate you from the love of God in Christ. Well, I ask you, is anything too hard for the Lord? Or think about the temptations you're enduring. Think about God's promises in Christ like 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So God promises to be so faithful to you always, there will always be a way of escape that you might endure that temptation and not give into it. Now, I ask you, does God have the ability to be so faithful to you 24-7, 365 days a year, that Always, always, always there's a way of escape that you might endure that temptation. Is that possible in your life? Well, is anything too hard for the Lord? I mean, do you feel this call to faith? This call to trust the all-powerful God that He will keep His every promise to us in Christ? Sarah, Sarah got there, actually. Hebrews chapter 11 says, quote, she believed God would keep his promise. And when she had a son in about a year, they named him Isaac, which means he laughs, which I think is kind of cool in light of Genesis 18. You can get there, friends. We can be there by his grace for we are aware of much more, much more fulfillment of these covenant promises than Sarah ever did, we can be sure nothing is too hard for the Lord. I want to add, though, you know, we need each other for this. I so appreciate Jeff highlighting this. We need each other to remind ourselves of these realities, to walk in the good of these realities, 
to, to go to your next home group meeting with this, agenda, with this agenda? Who can I remind in the midst of some trouble or trial or difficulty and say so lovingly and gently, oh, friend, is anything too hard for the Lord? We need each other, don't we? To remind each other of these things and walk in light of them, believing God's promises to us in Christ. And if you've yet to believe God's promises to you, I, I would be remiss if I didn't urge you at this moment to turn to Christ, to turn and trust in God's promise to rescue you, forgive you of your sins, and bring you to Himself as you trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God holds out that promise to you right now, and I urge you to turn to Christ believing, trusting in His life, death, and resurrection to bring you to God, and He will. That's, that's the call, this call to faith. What, what about the comfort I mentioned? I think the first readers of Genesis, the first readers would have felt this call to faith, this people about to enter the promised land. I think they would have felt that call to faith, and I think they would have felt a comfort here. I mean, Abraham is, is reflecting the kind of hospitality standards of his day. Par excellence, five-star treatment. But the first readers of Genesis, I think, would have been struck by this communal meal, communal meal in the context of a covenant, a communal meal which was a sign of friendship. Knowing the identity of these guests, as we are told, knowing this covenant that this God had made with them, wouldn't it point them to their own covenant with God and the friendship God has with them. That's the comfort. In other words, God doesn't just relate to His people with mere raw power. He relates to you in the context of a loving relationship, this covenant. You might think of it as even a friendship. He relates to us in the context of His love and His goodness. And that's important. When we think about God's omnipotence, it is a bit like a catch-22 for us. A bit like a catch-22, the, the famous novel. The novel is set in World War II. And in the novel, there's a military rule that basically says you can escape the warfare going on, you can get out of the warfare if you are insane. But if you ask to get out of the warfare, that shows you're sane and not insane. That's the catch-22. If you're insane, you can get out of the war. But to ask to get out of the war, that shows you're sane in the novel. You don't have to agree with that, but that's the catch-22. The catch-22 for us is, if God is all-powerful, why does this continue in my life? If God is all-powerful, why hasn't He stopped this pain? Why does he allow this suffering to continue? Why does he allow the sickness in my body to continue when he could stop it? Why does he allow my wayward child? Why does he allow the broken marriage? Why does he allow the finances to be strained or me to not have a job or my family member to not know him? Why does he allow these things? If he is all powerful, that's the catch-22. Why doesn't God stop this or prevent this or do this when he could and Personal instances of suffering, 
will have mystery in them. We're not told everything God is doing. We're not given every specific purpose. The book of Job is like that. Job never got his questions answered. He just met God in the end. And that was enough. I think this passage can be like that for us. We're reminded to rest in an all-powerful God who is relating to us in a friendship. An all-powerful God who is relating to us in a relationship, a covenant of love with His goodness. And so, and so, friends, we glorify Him by believing His promises that nothing is too hard for the Lord. And we glorify Him by prayer, asking Him, yes, to move in those situations, to heal the sickness in our bodies, to change our child's heart, to work in the broken marriage, to grant us a new job, to save the unbelieving family member. We pray for all those things. We bring those requests to our omnipotent God all the while resting. That He is relating to you out of His love, His goodness, and His care. Friendship with God through Christ. See this meal of friendship in Genesis 18, this meal in the context of a covenant it points us to another meal in the context of a covenant. We call it the Lord's Supper. It points even beyond that to the marriage supper of the Lamb where we will dine with Jesus face to face. Jesus who calls His disciples friends when all things are made new. So we're going to close by taking the Lord's Supper to 